Podjack number two, Gene Baxter here on Podcast Radio, and I have some news that's going to be very difficult for you to absorb. The album Back in Black by ACDC turned 40 years old this summer. And yes, guitarist Angus Young is still wearing short pants, so I guess the band is as timeless as ever. To celebrate this anniversary, there's a new podcast about Back in Black. It's the first episode in a new series about the best-selling albums of all time called The 20 Million Club, in association with Classic Rock Magazine and hosted by Nicky Horn. It's Nicky's first podcast, but he's a one-man tour of British radio history. He's done time at Radio 1 and 2, Classic FM, Capital, Virgin, Magic, Jazz FM, Planet Rock, and probably any other station you can pick up. We not only talked about why Back in Black is so special, but about his incredible career, his interviews with artists like David Bowie and John Lennon, including a never-before-told story about Yoko Ono. Radio Man to Radio Man, it was a thrill to catch up with Nikki. I felt like I'd met a traveler out on the road and was delighted to find out we both spoke the same language. With so much to talk about, where do we begin? At the beginning. That magic moment when Nikki Horn got hooked on radio. I remember it uh, distinctly. I was 13 and it was my bar mitzvah and uh, my father out of the blue uh, bought me a Telefunken reel-to-reel tape recorder. I hadn't asked for it. It was not anything that I'd ever even hinted at with my parents, but he bought me this tape recorder and uh, I hooked it up to the radio and I used to record Alan Freeman. The, the wonderful uh, Fluff Freeman, who used to do Pick of the Pops on Radio 1, the countdown of the, uh, the top 30. They took over just outside that top three last week, but it's a reversal. And down come the Mersey Beats to number six this week with I Think of You. But in the right direction again, the Rolling Stones. And I used to uh, record Alan Freeman on Pick of the Pops every Sunday. And then I taught myself to edit so I, I had a, a razor blade, uh, you know, in the old days of analog editing. Uh, I had a razor blade, uh, an editing block, a china graph. And I used to edit out his speech and put my own speech in. So I had essentially my own radio station in my bedroom. That's how I started. And then the Pirates um, started in 67 uh, here. And I was... what. 17 then, just 17. And I used to listen to Kenny Everett and Dave Cash and David Simons and Tommy Vance and all of these wonderful people. And it was so romantic listening to these pirate ships from, you know, out in the North Sea playing the music that I just loved. On Big L this week, it's six o'clock. The Rabbit Breakfast Program at nine o'clock, it's Tony. You must be joking. Windsor at 12 o'clock, it's Dave. That's the lovely one there, Dennis. At three o'clock, the man of whom everybody is saying absolutely nothing, Mr. Ed Stewart. At six o'clock, the first man in the Western world to make a death-defying leap from the Whispering Gallery and live. Everett of England. And I, I wanted to do that. I wanted to be a pirate radio DJ, but I was, I was too young. And then I was very fortunate a couple of years later to meet up with uh, someone that I'm sure you know, Gene, Emperor Roscoe. Emperor Roscoe, R-O-S-K-O, Roscoe, the Roscoe Show. Hit it, baby, come on. All right. It's going to come together tonight. It's party time. Party with me. He was a big, huge DJ on Radio One, 
And uh, I met him through a series of weird coincidences. And he asked me, uh, once again, this, this sort of happened out of the blue, a bit like the, tele the tape recorder. He asked me to um, become his assistant. And so I moved out of my parents' house in Palmer's Green uh, in North London into this uh, rock and roll flat in West Kensington. And I became his assistant and also his roadie because he used to have the, uh, the uh, Roscoe Roadshow. And I'd go all over the country with him. And I would sit in the studio with him on a Saturday at Radio 1 while he did his programme. And sitting in that studio in Radio 1, in the, those early days, 69, 68, 69 it was, was just, it was the place where I knew I wanted to be. And I'm sure that when you first went into a radio studio, you just knew, Gene, that that was where you should be. Absolutely. Well, for me, it was college radio. I went to the University of Maryland because they had a college radio station, and I knew and had known for a long time that that's what I wanted to do, was be a voice on the radio. So you can imagine, I skipped all of my classes, spent as much time as I could at the radio station, <laughs> ended up dropping out of university after two years. My parents were furious, as they should be, by the way. Anytime a teenager comes to you and says, I'm skipping education because I'm going to make a career in the entertainment industry. Your parents are right to, to put their foot down and say, that is a terrible idea. Never do that. Exactly. I, w I was going to be a doctor and I had a place at university, um, the University of Sussex. And I had a place and I had the grades and all that, the A-level grades. And uh, I said to my parents, um, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to go and um, share a flat with Emperor Roscoe and be a DJ. They were not happy. <laughs> uh, since you had that big break so early and uh, were uh, smart enough and talented enough to take advantage of it and turn it into a career, did you ever have to work a civilian job? Did you ever bag groceries or do any other job or has your only work been being in radio? That's a very good question. And no one has ever asked me that question in any interview. Yes, I did one job. I had one proper job. And that was, I was, I worked in the Christmas cracker department of Harrods one Christmas. <laughs> and I was a salesperson uh, over the Christmas period. And I have to say that I was fired uh, from Harrods, probably the only temp who was ever fired. I think I lasted about four weeks. And all you had to do was make it through the holiday season, right? It wasn't like yeah, exactly. eight years in. Yeah. You had and to last selling, four weeks. I, I was saying Christmas crackers and baubles and, you know, Christmas decorations and stuff. Well, I, I got fired because they uh, they implied that I was rude to a customer. Mm. But uh, that that didn't last long, that job. But that was the only real job I've ever done. Did you have many gaps in your 50-year radio career between jobs? No, actually, I've been, you know, touch wood um, here in my study at home. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've had a kind of continuous career. I did stop radio for a while. I'd been at Capital for about 13 years doing basically the, the rock show, Your Mother Wouldn't Like It, and a Saturday show, a live Saturday show, which I just adored, called Six of the Best, where the, the audience... Cho chose the music as we were going along and I loved doing that and that was a new concept at the time request radio right yeah well what we did with six of the best was we, we would take a, a sort of theme of the week and it would be sort of around the news so there would be six themes and each theme would last half an hour so it was a three-hour show 
and and the topic would be something like oh music for when prince charles gets married <laughs> um or music for margaret thatcher to play to her cabinet you know and and people would choose sort of um music that that had a a wit about it. Yeah, there were some very cheeky suggestions, I'm sure. Yeah, it was it was very good. Music for a disco in hell, Hot Stuff by The Stones, I Can Feel the Fire by Ronnie Wood, and Both Ends Burning from Roxy Music. Tricky, huh? And uh, I love doing that, but when I left Capital in 86, I went to do the American football on Channel 4, so I had about a gap of, I suppose, about... 18 months where I, I wasn't on the radio uh, by choice. And then I went to work for Virgin and I was there for a couple of years doing the drive time. And I did get, um, I did get fired from there along with a couple of other people when Chris Evans yeah. um, took over the radio station. And I'd kind of had my fill at that point of music radio. And I went into talk radio. Um, a friend of mine, was um, managing director of the then talk radio that had just started up. I think it had been going for about six months or so. And he offered me uh, one show a week. And I just, I mean, it was scary. I mean, you know sure. what it's like when you're in a studio and you've got music and you've got turntables and CDs. And, and to be in a studio with just a microphone and an on-off switch. I've got 11 um, minutes to fill. This better be good. Yeah, exactly. It was terrifying. But I actually, I so loved doing it. It was a, a great challenge. And that's how actually a lot of the interviews that uh, you were talking about, the David Bowie interview, you know, I managed to persuade Bowie to come into a talk radio station and do an interview. And I think it was the first time he'd ever done sort of an interview on a talk radio station. But I think a lot of diehard Bowie fans were, were really surprised by how abrasive and... Um, unapproachable the, the album was yeah i expect they were that's what exactly what you wanted though wasn't it well it's not what we wanted so much nicky it's, it's the way that it turned out i mean frank we had so i i've been out. very very fortunate in my career um and, and a lot of my friends um, have not been so fortunate. I am not going to make you revisit the uh, greatest hits of uh, Nicky Horn over the decades. You've been part of so many amazing once-in-a-lifetime moments. But I am going to ask, because I think our podcast radio audience would enjoy it so much, if you would tell the John Lennon story, because you, you might as well have just uh, retired after that weekend, right? Well, yes. I mean, it was. Uh, it started actually with Kenny Everett, because um, Kenny and I were working together at Capital. And Kenny sort of breezed into my studio one Friday night um, and said, hello, darling, how would you like to go to New York to interview John? And I said, John who? He said, oh, Lennon, silly Billy. Um, and Everett told me this story that um, Lennon had wanted to do an interview and he knew Kenny from the old Liverpool days. They were they were chums from, you know, the very, very early days of the Beatles. And um, Kenny told me that um, John, in Kenny's words, um, John wanted to talk about some heavy stuff. And he said, it's not, it's not really my thing, love. So would you go? Well, of course, wild horses um, wouldn't stop me. And a few days later, I flew to New York. Um, I went to the Dakota building. Um, and I was, I remember 
walking up to the door of his flat, I would, I've been given the address at the Dakota, this wonderful, as you know, the Dakota is a wonderful old sort of Gothic building. So even as you walk in, you feel like you're walking into history. Um, and I remember my hand was shaking so much from fear that I could hardly knock on the door. Uh, the door opened and there was Lennon. Um, and he realized, I think very, very early on, that I was completely terrified. So he said, look, he said, I've just made some cookies. He said, they're not, you know, a mix, an instant mix. He said, I've I made cookies for you. And he said, I've got the coffee on. So why don't we just, you know, sit and have a chat uh, before you start recording? And so we did. And I mean, the remarkable thing is that John Lennon warmed me up rather than the normal convention of the interviewer warming the interviewee up. I understand um, why you were hyperventilating, by the way. I've had the opportunity to interview Paul and Ringo. And when you're in the presence of a Beatle, you realize there are fewer of them in the world than there are ex-presidents of the United States. It's quite humbling just to shake the indeed. hand of a man who was a member of the Beatles. Indeed. And not only that, he was very much like Bowie, sort of otherworldly. He, he, he sort of transcended the human being, sort of. He, he, was, he was different. He was... There was something about Lennon that was different. And after about an hour or so of him warming me up, uh, I switched the tape recorder on and we started talking. And he talked about, he wanted to talk about how his phones had been bugged and how he was being followed by the FBI or the CIA. And when I brought the interview back and we played the interview on Capitol, a lot of people said, you know, oh, Lennon, he's just a nutcase. And, you know, that I, I Nicky, was naive, you know, to swallow this story about how he was being followed and his phones were being tapped. And yet years later, when the documents were released in America, um, it was proven um, that the FBI and the CIA were, in fact, uh, doing all that stuff to Lennon because they felt that he was a danger to national security. Yeah, yeah, it was very difficult for him to get citizenship, I remember. They did everything yeah, they could to block yeah. him at various points. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But it, it was it was an incredible interview, and he, he was just so generous. And you think about the number of interviews that he'd done over the years, and he didn't really know me. He only knew me through Everett, and he was just so lovely. We do run, we're lucky enough to run into people who have that specialness to them. I mean, I know you've interviewed... Bono, as I have many times, and he's another one who just makes you feel like you're the only person in the room, and he there's no place he'd rather be, and that's very rare exactly. in an interview subject. So, what exactly. a what a wonderful memory! I bet the buzz of that lasted for a long time. The buzz may still be going on in your head, Nikki. Indeed, um, and in fact, if if I may, about a year later, well, eighteen months later, after he'd uh, he'd been shot, I got a phone call from uh, Warner Brothers, who said that Yoko wanted me to go and interview her and give her first interview after John's death. And so um, I flew to New York again and went back to the Dakota, where I remember I was frisked on the way in to check for any weapons or any recordings, actually, because she had, she had rung me before at the Hilton to say, look, come and have tea with me, but at the moment I don't want to record anything. So I went back and, and had tea with Yoko. We spent 
a good hour and a half together. She didn't want to be recorded. She didn't want me to reveal any of the things that she'd said uh, during the interview. And um, from that day to this, I haven't. And then two days later, I flew back to London. Um, so I, I flew to New York just to have tea with your co-owner. And there was never an interview that never materialized. It was no, no. She said that the stars were not right for an interview, but she wanted to meet me and she wanted to talk about John and she wanted to talk about her life and how she was. And um, no, I've, I've never, I've never revealed um, some of the things that she, that she said in that interview. That's so interesting, Nikki. It makes me wonder if maybe she was looking for a way to connect with somebody that she knew had connected with her husband. Maybe it made her feel like he was there because you were the intermediary between the two of them. Well, I mean, to, to be honest, I, the, the one thing that I can sort of tell you about the interview is that w we did talk about, and I did say to her quite early on, you know, how wonderful John had been to me. And, you know, said that, because she wasn't in the flat at the time. They just got back together again um, after that period where they separated, but she wasn't in the flat. And I remember saying this to her and just saying how wonderful John had been and how considerate he'd been and, you know, how empathic he'd been. Uh, and she cried. Mm. Yoko started to cry. So what do you do in that circumstance? You know, I, I, I just naturally went over to her and put my arm around her and said, you know, I'm sorry that I, I, I really didn't want to upset you. The last thing I wanted to do was upset you, Yoko, by telling you that story. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave now. Um, and she went, no, 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 no. Please, please stay. Have some more tea. Now I'm going to cry. <laughs> I mean, that's a real, that's so rare to have that kind of emotional human moment with a, with yeah. a, with a, a star. Yeah. So this is the voice of Nikki Horn, radio legend here in the UK. Now a podcaster. Is this deal with classic rock? Is this your first foray into the podcasting medium, Nikki? Yes, um, it is Gene, actually. Um, I've been talking to uh, classic rock magazine for some time about doing a podcast and we've always wanted to work together since the time that I was on a, a radio show, which was the classic rock magazine show a radio station called Team Rock, which lasted here uh, for a couple of years. And this podcast, uh, we've been searching for kind of the format. We didn't want to replicate what Classic Rock magazine was. We wanted to do something a little different. And so the 20 Million Club is a podcast about the biggest selling albums in history, those albums that have sold over 20 million. And each episode covers one album. And it's a kind of re-evaluation, a deep dive into what makes this particular album a member of the 20 Million Club. So we re-evaluate, we eviscerate sometimes, we ask what's so good about it, why it's sold so many, uh, what would you change about the album, what are its weakest points, what are its strongest points, who of the band comes out the best in the album. Uh, and where necessary, we take the mickey as well so we've done this uh, this first show uh, which is on acdc's uh, back in black which is uh, the biggest selling rock album of all time
and I'm joined on the first show by Shant Huelin, who is the editor of Classic Rock magazine, and by Scott Rowley, who's the ex-editor of Classic Rock magazine, but is now in charge of all the, the music titles uh, that are published by Future. And um, we did it as a pilot, and I'm really pleased to say that in the last couple of days, we've decided that we're going to make this into a, into a series. So um, I'm so yeah, pleased to hear that because I love the first episode so much because how can you not want to hear people talking about ACDC Back in Black? It's an album that just means so much to so many of us. Why was that the one that you chose as the as the pilot episode, Nikki? Well, because, I mean, we're, we're recording this um, in the early part of August and uh, last week was the anniversary of the release of Back in Black. So we, we thought that we'd tie it uh, with that. And also because Back in Black, has got such an amazing backstory to it. And when you think that, you know, Bon Scott, the original vocalist of ACDC, you know, had died just before they were going to record what became Back in Black. You know, he died from, you know, what some say was a heroin overdose. Uh, and we speculate about that in the podcast. And a few weeks after he died, ACDC, found a brand new vocalist in Brian Johnson and we're recording this album in the Bahamas. I mean, it's, it's an, a, an astonishing backstory to this album that then becomes, with a brand new vocalist, it becomes the biggest selling rock album in history. When you laid out on the show, Nikki, the, the timeline of Bon Scott's death Brian Johnson being hired, the album being recorded and then released, and to have all of that happen in what, less than six months? That was shocking. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, um, uh, some would say that they that they recorded this um, and released it with sort of indecent haste. Um, but there's another sort of point of view in that the band could really have been really quite angry with, with Bon and the fact that they their trajectory at this point before back in black their trajectory was upward they were they were really beginning to take off particularly in america and you could argue that when bon at this ridiculously young age and he just killed himself through excess alcohol or however he died um and the band you could argue that the band were really annoyed and upset with him rather than the accepted view, which is that they did this as a kind of uh, a tribute to Bond. And one of the contributors, Scott Rowley, sort of argues that in the podcast. Um, but it, it, it's such a great story. It's not, just, it's not just a great album. There's a wonderful story that goes with it. Oh, it's a wonderful episode, and I don't want to give anything else away because I want to direct people immediately to go listen to that as soon as they listen to this talk, uh, especially the part about recording. Don't say it here. I want them to hear it. But the part about them trying to record the bells for Hell's Bells was also new information to me, and I thought that was fascinating. <laughs> yes. um, all right. I did okay. not uh, cheat ahead of this talk and look up a list of albums that have sold 20 million copies. So I have no idea how many there are, how many podcast episodes you guys plan to do on this. Am I wrong to think that it's everything I would expect it to be. It's Thriller, it's Purple Rain, it's Dark Side of the Moon, it's Rumors, those sorts of albums that are iconic that seem to be in everyone yes, and their parents' also, record collection, right? Exactly, but it's also Jagged Little Pill. Oh, Alanis Morissette, okay. It's it's actually a very eclectic mix, and there's lots of pop ones as well, but we are, 
going to concentrate, you know, on more on the sort of rock side. But you've also got greatest hits as well. You've got the Eagles' greatest hits in there as well. There's albums by Queen. So it is, it's all the stuff that is in our, as you say, our record collection. Uh, and it's the albums that we know and love. I think the next one we're going to do, and we talked about this the other day, and the consensus of opinion is that it's going to be Led Zeppelin 4. Okay, so that's a great uh, entryway into this question, Nikki, which is, at this point, is there something new to say about Led Zeppelin 4, an album that we are all so familiar with that we can hear the sequencing in our sleep? Yes. I mean, I would ask you, Gene, what do you think the weakest song is on Led Zeppelin 4? All right, I'll have to bring up the album now to see. Would it be Four Sticks? Would that be a reasonable guess? That's the first one that came to mind as one that I don't... I mean, I'll always listen to it, but I don't need it. When was the last time, Gene, you heard, you listened, you really listened to the lyrics of Stairway to Heaven? When was the last time most of us listened to an album from back to front? Well, exactly. But, you know, you listen to the lyrics of Stairway to Heaven, mm -hmm. and really... It's nonsense. Of course it is. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous. A it's a wonderful track, but you listen to the lyrics and they just do not make any sense whatsoever. All right, I'm taking a look so, at the track listing and I'm, and I'm sticking with Four Sticks because I'll never give up going to California. I can't live without When the Levee Breaks, which is one of the greatest songs of all time. Stairway to Heaven, Essential, Battle of Evermore, Essential, Rock and Roll and Black Dog, two killer, killer tracks. The only other possibility is Misty Mountain Hop, but I'm telling you, it's a near-perfect album, and that's going to be a fun episode to listen to. You've turned me around. There's a lot to say about Led Zeppelin IV. <laughs> exactly. Well, I hope on a future podcast that um, we could invite you to, to be one of our contributors. I would be honored. I'd be honored to do it. And let me just say one more thing before we uh, bid uh, adieu here today, and that is just going back to episode one, The Back in Black, your uh, esteemed guests were both too young to have really been the target audience for Back in Black, but they've gone on as adults and gone back and, and fallen in love with that album. And now it's a part of their lives, just like it was a part of our lives when you and I were playing it on the radio back in 1980. I know. I hate it that they, that they are so young. Um, <laughs> it, really, it really scared me a bit when they said that in the podcast. But yeah, and I think, I think a lot of the bands that you and I have played, Gene, over the years, where you know, they, the debut albums of a lot of these bands, they're being rediscovered by people now. And that's, you know, such a wonderful thing that people are discovering bands like Led Zeppelin, that they, they, weren't, they weren't born, you know, when, when the band had even broken up and yet they're discovering this music. And, and that's a wonderful thing. I don't want to end on a, a down note, but we're both such rock and roll fans and radio fans. Does it concern you in recent years that rock appears to be dying for most young people? They've grown up in a world that's all pop and hip hop, and it's very difficult to even find rock music on anything resembling a radio station in 2020. Well, I don't know. I, I'm not sure about that. I was, I was looking at the figures for Planet Rock here in the UK, and those audience figures, that they are going up. I was looking at some uh, figures for classic rock radio. Fred Jacobs is the guy who kind of invented the classic rock format in America. And uh, he put a blog post out the other day saying that, you know, radio stations that are following uh, his particular format are doing, you know, really quite well. So I'm not sure. I, I don't think rock is dead. I don't think it's, I don't even think it's torpid. And when people are discovering it, through radio stations or even when people are talking about it on podcasts, 
I think, you know, um, the younger audience do go back and, and with Spotify, you know, the fact that you can, and the other streaming services, the fact that you can discover all this stuff and that they point you towards things that you might like, I think that that's doing a, a great service to the music that we love. The podcast is called The 20 Million Club. And Back in Black is the first episode that's out now. More to come very soon. Nikki Horn, what a delight to meet you. What a delight to chat with you. Thank you so much for being with us on Podcast Radio. I really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. Hey, nerds. I'm Sarah, the Paper Nerd. And if you've ever wondered what goes into that greeting card you just sent or received, well, quite a lot. Get your paper fix on the paper fold where I host an enchanting mix of personalities and players all nerding out on my favorite topic, stationery. From the designs of our snail mail communications to the precious space created when two people correspond, there's a lot to cover. So come grab a seat in the stationery community's only five-star paper salon, The Paper Fold, now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network.